a few verses will serve as the basis for the uh, message today, more of a springboard as we uh, examine a thought that is found here in these few verses. We're going to begin reading in verse number 17, Revelation chapter 1, verse number 17. Uh, thank all those that are here turning your Bibles and standing. If you're uh, watching on the live stream, I encourage you to do the same. Revelation 1, verse number 17, the Bible says this. It says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you, Lord, for your blessings upon us. We thank you, God, for your grace. And we thank you, Lord, for your power. And God, it's your power that brought you forth up from the tomb uh, some 2,000 years ago. And God, it's your power, Lord, that raises dead men unto life even still. And Lord, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful, God, for your precious word that tells us all about it, tells us everything we need in this life. And men study and men philosophy, uh, men seek after philosophy and things of that nature. God, but I am so glad that all that I need is found in your perfect holy word. And God, I pray, Lord, you help me, Lord, to treasure it even more still. Lord, I pray, God, you help this church, Lord, to lift it up as paramount. Uh, God, to stand upon it as our foundation. And Lord, I pray, God, you help us, Lord, as we are about in our communities, Lord, to uh, proclaim uh, what it says. And we thank you for it. We thank you, Lord, for your blessings upon us. Thank you for the opportunity, God, to gather here uh, in your name, in your house. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This passage of Scripture, Jesus makes this statement, and uh, I, I love the, the way it's worded. I, I love the Word of God. I love this particular statement. Verse number 18, he says, I am he that liveth and was dead. He's speaking past tense there, right? I am, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Those words were written, uh, pinned down some 2,000 years ago, somewhere in that vicinity, but they are true ever still here today some 2,000 years later. And guess what? They'll be true 2,000 years from now. This world may not be here, but uh, the Word of God will still be uh, settled even then. And so we see that statement there, and, 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 and he even has to give himself an amen after that. <laughs> right? He says, I am he that was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And so I'm glad I'm not the only preacher that ever did that. And, uh, and, and, he, and he continues on, and he says, and have the keys of hell and of death. Man, he's the gatekeeper, amen? And so we see, uh, and, and he, tells, he tells John this, he says, write the things which thou hast seen, the things in the past. And he said, the things which are, the things which are happening now. And, and he goes on, he said, the things which shall be hereafter. And then he continues on to give um, John this prophetic look at what would happen and what will happen uh, in the uh, last days. And so, uh, like I said, I want to use that as a springboard. I want to talk today about life after death. Now, 
Today we celebrate what is commonly known as Easter. Uh, the better description it would be Resurrection Day, and that is simply because of this. The word Easter is used in Scripture one time. It's found in Acts 12, 4, and it says this. It says, when he had uh, apprehended him, speaking of Paul, it says he put him in prison and delivered him to uh, four uh, quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth uh, to the people. And so that word Easter there, it's actually just another name for Passover. And so the, the Passover uh, in, um, in actuality was established by Moses in Exodus chapter 12, somewhere in that ballpark there, of the Passover lamb, the tenth plague that God would bring upon the uh, land of Egypt. And you know the story about how God had instructed them to take a lamb. They were to watch the lamb for four days. They were to slay the lamb on the 15th day and to put the blood upon the doorpost and the lintel. And then the death angel was going to pass over. And uh, as he passed over, when he saw the blood, he'd pass over. I'm glad that still applies. Amen. Uh, there's no blood upon uh, the doorpost of the house over there, but the blood has been applied right here, and so therefore the death angel will pass over me. And so, But the Easter was just another name for Passover, and so it is describing uh, what happened three days earlier. It is describing the Passover lamb, the, the crucifixion. And so, uh, but, you know, there's no harm in it that people call today Easter, and, and I call today Easter, and it's fine. I just want you to kind of understand the uh, biblical basis uh, for that. But we are here today celebrating the resurrection of our Lord. Guess what? The Buddhists can't do that. Uh, the uh, Muhammad lovers, they can't do that. Uh, what do you call them? Huh? The Muslims. Yeah, the Muslims, they can't, they can't do that. Muhammad's still in the grave. Amen? Now, they can't do that. But thank God we can stand here and we can do that. We can, we can speak about how our Lord has the keys of death and hell and how he raised from the grave. And so today, like I said, I want to speak about uh, the topic simply life after death. And today in this setting, in this church... And in particular on this day, the thought of life after death is not something that is odd. I'm sure most of you probably expected to hear something uh, revolving around that topic in some way, life after death, because we're celebrating the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you weren't necessarily on this day, and we're not talking about the resurrection day or Easter, if, we're, if we weren't talking about that and I or someone else were to talk about the topic of life after death, you would kind of get essentially two reactions. The first one would be from the atheists, and uh, they would say, well, there is no life after death, you dummy. There is life and there is death. When you die, then you go in the ground, and that's it. Nothing else happens, and it's all over. And so that's one of the reactions you might get from some people when you speak about life after death. The other reaction, what typically you would get from Christians, but not exclusively unto Christians, is the thought of an afterlife. When we oftentimes speak of life after death, we are focusing or thinking about heaven. 
right? We're thinking about, man, we're living now, but then we're going to die. But after death, man, we're going to have life. Amen, we are, right? I'm, I'm glad for that. I'm glad that we have that afterlife to look forward to. I'm glad that we have heaven to look forward to. Other religions, they have, uh, a lot of them have an afterlife per se, uh, but I'm glad mine is true and mine is factual. And so anyway, those are kind of the reactions you get when we're talking about life after death. But I, I want to talk uh, more uh, more specific than that. Because when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about the uh, resurrection day, and Jesus died and rose again. He died physically, and He rose again physically. And so we're talking about a physical thing that Jesus experienced. And I want to talk about a physical thing, but then also you have to look at the spiritual aspect of it, and that is simply this, that because Jesus died, and because He was able to raise again, none of that would have happened unless it was of a spiritual nature. And so we have a combination of the physical and the spiritual. And that's what I want to talk about today. I'm not talking about heaven. I'm glad that we have it. Say man, if you're glad that we have it. I'm glad that we have heaven. But that's not the life after death that I want to talk about. Jesus died in the flesh. He rose again in the flesh. But it all happened because it was based upon something spiritual. Church, listen. You know what we need to do as Christians? We need to die to the flesh. We need to give up the flesh. And I'm not talking about, you know, falling down into a grave and being covered up and not having air in your lungs anymore. That's not the death I'm talking about. I'm talking about death to this old rotten nasty flesh. The only way that we're going to have life after death in that sense is, is it because of a spiritual nature, just as Jesus. So Jesus died physically. He rose again physically. He lived physically. But He lived because it was based in the spiritual. And the only way you and I are going to accomplish that, the only way you and I are going to accomplish life after death in this sense, is if we base it and found it on the spiritual principles that's found in the Word of God. So... When we're speaking about life after death, um, I had made mention at the uh, beginning of this, or at least if I, I, I meant to, if I didn't, but that is when we're talking about Easter and how it's the Passover and it's speaking of the death, um, not necessarily the resurrection. But you cannot have a resurrection unless you have a death, right? It's pretty basic. You cannot be revived unless you die. And so we have to go back to the beginning of where this all starts and talk about death for a moment. And looking at Jesus, I want to speak about the environment of His death, the environment, the things, kind of what all was encompassing in His death, what all was happening. Number one, when we think about the environment of His death, I think the first thing when we're speaking about the death of Jesus Christ is we're looking at it and, uh, man, I have to say that it had to be painful. It had to be painful. We consider the death of Jesus and all the things that he endured, it had to be painful. There was a reason. Listen, there was a reason. I don't think it was solely because of pain. There's a reason why Jesus was in the garden crying out for mercy. He understood what was coming. And so when we think about that, we think about the pain in which the death of Jesus 
brought forth, we could start there in the garden. The garden, as I've said on time uh, in memorial, that that is where the blood began to flow. Our redemption blood began to flow. Listen, he could have gave up in the garden. He could have gave up in the garden. But man, he continued on and, and was steadfast in his mission to complete it. That is where the blood began. And then you could go on to the palace of the high priest. That's where, uh, that's where he was taken next. And that's where they would buffet him. That's where they would pluck his beard. And uh, none of that uh, could, have, uh, uh, could have been pleasurable at all. It was painful there. And then they'd go to Pilate's place, and then they'd beat him. They'd mock him. They'd plait that crown of thorns upon his head. They'd put the robe upon him. They would uh, beat him with the nine tails at the whipping post. All of that painful. But then let's just go on to the cross for a moment. Go on to the cross. Consider it for just a moment. The nails being driven through your hands and your feet. Imagine being Jesus and how that would feel. Imagine as you're nailed there, and that is how your body weight is being suspended. And you've already been beat. Your back is ribbons, and you're hanging there on the cross, and you can't breathe, and so therefore you have to push up on that nail and those hands in order to get a breath, and that wounded back just slides up that old rough timber. Painful. All the while, all the while, those in which in whom he was dying for walked by wagging their heads at him. The cross was painful, church. But Jesus said this before he ever got there. He said in Matthew 16, 24, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus knew the pain that was going to come. And he said, If any man is going to follow me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Paul said this. Paul said in Galatians 2, 20, He said, I am crucified with Christ. Paul went through many trials. Paul went through much pain. Paul endured many torments. And he said, I am crucified with Christ. I wonder how many of us really could honestly say those words today. I am crucified with Christ. I have suffered the pain that uh, Christ has suffered. I have suffered the pain that Paul has suffered. Uh, Paul said that he was crucified with Christ. We see also Paul went on to say in uh, Romans 7, 8, 18, he said this. He said, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which, I, uh, which is good I find not. And so what did Paul struggle with? You know what Paul struggled with? Putting down that flesh. Paul struggled with putting that flesh into submission. Paul struggled with going through, why did he do that? Because putting down the flesh is painful. Crucifixion is painful. This flesh wants what the flesh wants. And church, we are, we are spiritual in the sense that we've been born again, not by flesh and blood, but by the Spirit of God, but we still live in this old rotten flesh. And this old rotten flesh has a mind of its own, and it is not spiritual. Church, let me tell you something. If you're to experience life 
after death, it's going to be a little painful. Let me just go back. It's going to be a lot painful. It's going to be hard to do. That's why so many Christians live carnally and not spiritually. They're not willing to pay that price. They're not willing to go through those torments. They're not willing to, to be subject unto uh, all of that punishment. The least little whim of the flesh, man, and they just want to go ahead and, and live after the flesh instead of after the Spirit. But church, we're called to live after the Spirit, not after the flesh. Paul was a man of God. But Paul struggled with this. But I want you to understand, church, that Though our flesh is powerful, the Spirit, as a Christian that resides within us, is so much more. And the flesh can be put into subjection. The flesh can be conquered. Jesus proved that 2,000 years ago. We'd already spoken about how he was, he, was, he was praying and his sweat became as great drops of blood. Listen, he had all the pressure of all the sin, of all the world, of all time upon his shoulders. But yet his flesh didn't win out, the Spirit did. Amen. So we see, if we are to experience life after death, yeah, I'm not talking about salvation, I'm talking about sanctification. I hope that's clear. I do not earn my salvation. That was bought and paid for by His sacrifice, not my own. I'm talking about sanctification. I'm talking about living in the Spirit and not in the flesh. We see Jesus' death. It was painful if we're to live a sanctified life. The flesh will fight against it. But that's why we see the second thing. Speaking about his death, it was on purpose. He made a conscious decision. He made a choice. John 10, 17, he said this. He said, therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. Church, let me tell you what, as a Christian, I have the power to lay down my life. I have the power, I have everything within me that I need to make that decision to lay it down. There is no sin that I can be tempted with that I must submit to. No sin. There is nothing in this flesh that by the Spirit I can't overcome. If I so choose. And that's the key. Jesus, his death was on purpose. He meant to do it. Why? Because it was the will of God for him. That's why he chose to do that. Jesus knew full well what he was doing. Matthew 26, 1, it says this, And it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. He knew it was coming. He said that it was coming. He made it known that it was coming. And it was fulfilled. Why? Because he made the choice to do it. He laid down his flesh that the Spirit might rise. We see his death was painful, and it was a conscious decision. It was on purpose. 
But it wasn't just on purpose, church. It was for a purpose. It's for a purpose. There was a reason. It's not that I can't imagine Jesus waking up that morning and saying, go get the, the colt and the ass and, and bring him here. Or, or Well, that was, uh, that was the week before. I can't, I can't imagine waking up in the morning and telling him to go prepare the upper room meal because he just desired to give his life that day. He said, hey, I think today would be a good day that I'm betrayed and crucified. Anybody make those plans today? Foolish, wouldn't it? But Jesus knew. And he knew, and he did it on purpose. Why? Because there was a purpose for it. There was a purpose that Jesus would lay down his life. There was a purpose that Jesus would offer himself up a sacrifice, a ransom unto many. Luke 19, uh, 10, he said this. He said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The purpose for Jesus to sacrifice himself, to go through that painful death, was so that others would be saved. Let me tell you what, there's life after death for the Christian. There is an eternal life after the physical death, and there is a sanctified life after the spiritual death. It's there. It's there for us. And guess what? There's a purpose. There's a purpose why God would want us to do that. There was a purpose why the Father would want the Son to give His life. There was a purpose. It was so that people would not die and go to hell. There's a purpose for us to live sanctified, separate, holy lives. You know what that purpose is? Same one Jesus had. So people would not die and go to hell. There's a world around us that's looking for something. They're looking for something. They're looking for the truth. And what they see too often in so many Christians is they see us say one thing and live another. They see us spouting something as true as it may be. But if it's so true, why aren't we living it? And so they see us saying one thing and then they see us saying spiritual things and then they see us living in the flesh. Brethren, this ought not be. It ought not be. There's a purpose why Jesus calls us to be holy, that he calls us to be sacrificed. That, that, that in, in, in Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, let me just read that real quick. Romans chapter 12, verse number 1, it says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. That's what God wants, which is our, your reasonable service. It was for a purpose. Jesus died a painful death. He had to put that flesh into subjection. He did it uh, on purpose. He made the conscious decision to do it, and he did it for a purpose, and that was to seek and save that which was lost. And then uh, lastly here, when we speak about the environment, those things that are surrounding the death of Christ, we see that it was all God's plan. It was all God's plan. 
none of this, none of Jesus' death or His resurrection caught God by surprise. Just like Corona has not caught God by surprise, uh, the crucifixion has not caught God by surprise. God is not surprised by any of it. It was all part of His plan. It says this, John 18, as Jesus is speaking unto Pilate, uh, verse number 36, it says, Jesus answered, He says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is, is my kingdom not from thence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And so everything that Jesus experienced... And isn't that amazing? So many Christians today, you know what they want? As soon as I get a drink of water, I'll tell you what they want. You know what so many Christians today want? They want their lives to be all sunshine and roses. They don't want to ever endure any hurt. They don't want to ever endure any pain. They don't ever want to endure anything that would cause them conflict. They don't want to endure any of that. They just want this road to be perfectly straight on top of the mountain all of the time. Let me tell you what, that's not, that's not God's design. You understand that? That's not God's design. It's God's design that we experience those mountains. But it's also God's design that we go through the valleys. It's God's design that we in, in, in endure those triumphs. And it's also... God's designed that we endure trials. And they're all for a purpose. You know, we experience trials to grow us closer unto Him. We endure valleys so that we might draw nigh unto Him. It's all for a purpose. Listen, God knows what He's doing. God knows what He's doing. And church, I'm here to tell you, God has called His Christians to be holy. God has called His people to be separate. God has called His people to be sanctified. It's all for a purpose. It's all part of His plan. Is it going to be painful? Yeah. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy to put down this flesh. This flesh, man, it has a mind of its own. And it is not the mind of God. We see the environment of His death. We also see something else. And speaking about this life after death, Jesus died in the flesh, rose in the flesh. It's all accomplished by the Spirit. See the environment, those things surrounding it, but we also see the evidence of His death. You know, whenever death occurs, there is uh, evidence, a trace that was left behind of the fact that someone had died. There was a, a theory, and I don't know if it's still a uh, theory or popular theory or what? There was a theory that Jesus really didn't die 2,000 years ago. There was a theory, it was called the swoon theory. Yes, I think I've heard, I heard people saying it. it's called the swoon theory. And that was that Jesus was upon that cross after being beaten within an inch of his life, ha having his visage marred more than any man, the Bible says. And yet he was on that cross, hanging there, being held by nails through his flesh having to raise up on it to breathe, and all this, and, and he just passed out. And uh, so they, they begged the body, and they came, and they stuck the spear in his side, and out 
flowed the blood and water, but, uh, but, but he really just wasn't dead. He was just asleep or unconscious. He was just passed out for a little while. And so they took the body and they laid him in the tomb. And they laid him in the tomb and, man, he revived. Somehow, this weakened, beaten, marred man was able to roll a two-ton stone out of the way and, and come forth. I mean, it's the most ridiculous theory that ever was. There was much evidence as to a dead Jesus 2,000 years ago. There was much evidence that didn't just suggest but proved that this Jesus was dead. Wasn't swooning, amen? Let's look at this evidence for just a moment. Uh, Number one, there was uh, circumstantial evidence. Circumstantial evidence. That, that circumstantial evidence means that there was evidence there that kind of points to a truth but can't prove it. Right? You've probably heard of circumstantial evidence in uh, legal cases and stuff like that. You know, it points to something that should have happened, it maybe happened, but it doesn't necessarily prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, there's plenty of circumstantial, uh, circumstantial evidence in that day speaking of the death of Jesus. The most prominent one that I could think about is that uh, trail of blood. A lot of blood evidence there. Amen. Amen. Starting in the garden, and then on to um, the chief priest's palace. Chief priest's palace. And there was a lot of that spilt there. And then that trail would lead on to Pilate's place. And then over to Herod's, and into Pilate's. And as, as he was there at Pilate's place, man, at, there at the whipping post, there was a great big pool of that circumstantial evidence there. And then all that long look, uh, walk up Mount Calvary. All that walk. Man, just imagine the trail of blood that led up there. And then around that cross, another pool would gather. And you would look at that blood that was just thrown all about Jerusalem that day, and you look at the amount that was given. Listen, it was a great amount of blood. Why? Because it was uh, enough blood to cover the sins of the whole world for all time. Amen. It was a lot of blood that was shed upon uh, uh, by Jesus that day. And you would look at that trail of blood, and you would look at the pools of blood, and you would say, man, someone, if this all came from one person, they had to have died. And so that's just the circumstantial evidence. But that doesn't necessarily prove it. But thank God we got more to prove it. Amen. We got more to prove it. It's not just circumstantial evidence. There's a physical evidence. Physical evidence. We see long before the swoon theory ever took place, there was another who doubted. His name was Thomas. John 20 and 24. It says this, But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. This is after his resurrection. Jesus appeared unto him. Thomas wasn't there. Thomas came. They told him all about it. It says, The other disciples heard, uh, therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
After eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, uh, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith uh, he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger. Behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless but believing. Listen. Think about the magnitude of those wounds. Uh, yeah, a nail. Fit your, your finger in there. But that wound in his side, man, he's talking about putting his whole fist in there. Great wound. There's plenty of physical evidence to show that Jesus had died. Amen. I don't know how many of us, I don't know how many of us are going to leave that circumstantial evidence, that trail of blood all the way, and then have those great big wounds, a huge one in your side to where you could fit your hand in, and think that the recipient thereof did not die. There was physical evidence there, but not only that. I mean, there was a circumstantial evidence, there was a physical evidence, but then there was also, and man, this is the best one, the eyewitness testimony. There was eyewitness testimony. To the death of Jesus, the centurion proclaimed it in Mark 15, 39. And when the centurion, which stood over against him, saw that he so cried out. And another gospel speaks about how the earth quaked and such. And he gave up the ghost. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Another soldier saw it, John 19, 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they anointed him and buried him. I mean, they had to think that he was dead, right? And it says this, it says, And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now you imagine Joseph and uh, Nicodemus getting the body of Jesus down, anointing that body and wrapping that body. Listen, they knew that Jesus was dead. There was no question in uh, Joseph's mind, Nicodemus's mind, the soldier's mind, the centurion's mind. All of them knew that he was dead. Plenty of people saw him die, not to mention those that were at the cross, those that experienced the earthquake. These are just some of the eyewitness testimonies in Scripture. But let me tell you what, there was also plenty of them that saw him alive afterwards. Amen. All kinds of eyewitness testimony. He appeared unto Mary Magdalene. Mark 16, 9, it says this. Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. Verse number 11, it says, uh, it says this. Even when she saw him, it says, and they, when they had heard that he was alive, had seen of her, believed not. Then he appeared to other two in Mark 16, 12. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into uh, the country. Verse 13, and they went and told it unto the residue. Neither believed they them. He appeared unto the leaven in Mark 16, 14. Afterward, he appeared unto the leaven as they sat at meat and abraded them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was reasoned. Paul testified this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, 
and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, and after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto the present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, and of all the apostles, the last of all he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. And so when we're talking about the death of Christ, we're talking about the evidence of His death. There was plenty of evidence uh, to show forth. And that just simply leads me to say this. Church, listen. If we are truly dead unto the flesh, there will be evidence that shows forth from that. You know, it won't be a question. It won't be a question. Centurion could look at the way you live and they could see the sacrifice you make. They could see the, the, the way and the manner in which you died. And they could say, man, truly this one was the Son of God. I wonder how many people, heathen, as the centurion was, would look at us and the way we live our lives and say, surely, truly, there is Son of God. They did Jesus. And why did they do that to Jesus? Because there's plenty of evidence to that fact. There's plenty of evidence. Look at your life right now, Christian. Look at your life. Is there evidence of a conscious decision to die to self? Have you experienced the pains of putting the flesh into subjection. Would people witness that fact and testify of that death and newness of life as they did Jesus 2,000 years ago? We see the environment of His death. We see the evidence of His death. And then lastly here for just a moment, we see the effects of his resurrection. He said he died, but he didn't stay dead. He lived anew. He lived um, in a manner that was different than it was before. We see the effects of his generation. Well, what did that mean? What did, he, what did a resurrected Christ uh, matter? Let me just say this. The resurrection matters. Without the resurrection, we have no Christianity. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. Without the resurrection, we have nothing to base anything on because there's been plenty of men to die for a cause. There's only been one that rose again. Amen. And so, we see the effects of his resurrection. What did it mean? Well, number one, it justified Justified. That means it vindicated the words of Christ. Jesus, uh, or uh, the book of Acts 17, 31, it says this, Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he was raised, uh, he hath raised him uh, from the dead. When we, church, just as Jesus, when he raised from the dead, it vindicated everything that he said. Everything that he said was proven true because he raised from the dead. When we live a resurrected life, when we walk in newness of life, you know what it does? It justifies everything we preach about this Jesus. It vindicates it. 
it proves it to be true. It is the proof that holds. And that's why I say in this society, why don't we see more people coming to Christ? It's because so many Christians are living like the dead next to them. And so they can't take what they're saying about this Jesus at full face value because they're not proving it. But man, when we live a resurrected life, it vindicates, it proves everything that we say about this Jesus. It matters. We see the effects of His resurrection. It justified. Uh, it justified us. It justified us. Jesus' resurrection justified you and me. Those that believe in Him. Romans 4.24 uh, But for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on Him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Because Jesus was able to raise to new life, we can trust what He said. Ephesians 2.6 And hath raised up together... Uh, to made us and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Uh, when we live resurrected life uh, lives, others will believe on the Lord. They will be justified as well. So the resurrection justifies. Lastly, here, church, the resurrection satisfies. The resurrection satisfies. Living a resurrected life is living a satisfied life. It is living a satisfied life. Most people that do not live the holy and separate, sanctified lives, they don't live it because they've never lived it. You follow me? Most don't live it because they've never lived it. They've never experienced what it was like to live a holy, separate, sanctified life. Now, in Sunday school, we're talking about the children of Israel. And in just this morning in Sunday school, the, the Kohath and them, they were looking, and uh, those two other fellas, uh, I can't remember their names. Numbers chapter 16. But yeah, I remember Korath, those are the two others from, uh, from the other tribe. But they had made this statement. They had said, they had said you took us from the land of milk and honey. They were looking back at their life of slavery as it was a blessing. And you know what I see so many Christians doing? They're living their lives as if they were still slaves. They're living their lives and they're looking upon their life and they're saying, man, this is, this is it. Oh, I want to do this and I want to do this. And I know that if I surrender unto Christ, well, I'm going to have to put these things away. And so therefore, I'll just go ahead. I mean, this really is the land of milk and honey. You know why they thought Egypt was the land of milk and honey? They never experienced Canaan's land. They never experienced Canaan's land. So therefore, they were thinking, well, that's, that's where the good stuff is. Let me tell you from someone who has lived both places, Egypt has nothing compared to Canaan's land. Egypt has nothing on Canaan's land. The sanctified, holy life there is so much better than what Egypt has to offer. So much better. But the sad thing is most Christians don't know it because they've never experienced Canaan's land. Let me just tell you this. I know putting down the flesh is hard. I know, I know fighting the flesh is difficult. I do it as well. Just like you. 
I fight the same battles as Paul fought, as you fought. I know it's difficult, but I'm going to tell you what, if you can ever get to the point to where you just surrender wholly unto God, and you say, okay, God, whatever, whatever it is you want, that's what I want. Whatever it is, I'm, I'm, I'm done over here, and I'm yours. If you ever get to that point, you will never look back and lust after Egypt. You won't do it. You'll realize just how good, uh, how, how, how Canaan's land doth truly flow with milk and honey. All the blessings that come in Canaan's land. Listen, it is a satisfying life for, for all those Christians, all those Christians that will not fully surrender unto the Lord because they're afraid of what they're going to give up. Just take it from me because that's all you can do until you experience it. But if you ever experience that, you'll find more satisfaction in that life than you ever have or ever will in Egypt. Or in the wilderness. Either one. You never do that. So many lost people today, they, they, will not, they will not come to Christ because they're so afraid of what they're going to give up. Let me tell you what. Let, let me tell you one thing you're going to give up. You're going to give up hell. Amen. That's one thing you're going to give up. You're going to give up eternal damnation. You're going to give up the pain that hell brings. Not And, and let me tell you something. The, the pain that hell brings and the pain of putting down the flesh, uh, they don't compare. So many people, so many lost people, they're afraid of what they're going to give up. And so they will not come to Christ. They'll ignore that still small voice speaking unto their heart. They'll turn away from Christ simply because of what they're afraid they're going to give up. Let me tell you what. There's so much, it's so much better over in Canaan's land. It's so much better in Canaan's land. You will never find the satisfaction in Egypt. You might find pleasure for a season, but that's all you're going to find. Man, I'm telling you what though, Canaan's land satisfies. A resurrected, sanctified, holy life is a satisfying life, much more so than living to the flesh and submitting to the flesh. Today we're talking about life after death, church. And as I said on the onset, man, I'm glad for heaven. Aren't you glad for heaven? Man, I'm glad that I have heaven. And I may get there today for all I know. And if I do, don't weep for me. Amen. You weep for my wife and children, you don't weep for me. I'll be in glory. But I, I, I may get to heaven today. I know I'll get there one day. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the security that I have in that. Church, but I'm telling you what, God wants us to enjoy this life today. And we can have joy. But joy is found in obedience. That's where it's found. That's where it's found. If you're liking joy, just sell out unto God. Just give it all to God. Whatever, Lord, whatever you want, that's what I'll do.